Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Kathy and Karen. Today we will discuss episode 21 of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or else email us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns or certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin. Additionally, we reference translations from what is provided online, and then we will also provide our own. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us. For this podcast episode, we will do an episode recap, then move on to history. Episode 21 opens to a very interesting scene. Let's make sure to take note of this scene. There's a little lotus flower lantern that's white floating down a river at Jing'anci. Xu Bin notices its existence, but doesn't make any more action towards it. Right after, we see Yao Zhuneng back in his court attire in Jing'anci ask Pang Ling, the guy who's been watching the time all day, about if it's true that when he's at work, he doesn't go to the bathroom for a whole 24 hours. Pang Ling says that is not true. He can not go to the bathroom for two days and one night. Except Yao Runeng points out that that's not true either. Pang Ling was spotted leaving his post multiple times today by Xu Bin. Pang Ling basically ignores Yao Runeng, but this conversation is quite interesting. Elsewhere, Wen Zhan has met up with Long Bo and is punishing Yu Chang for trying to kill her earlier. Wen Ran has let off the necessary steam, so she tells Yu Chang to get up in order to do work. Yu Chang once again shows that she is a bit of a loose cannon, and even Long Bo implies that she should not turn her skill towards family. This woman is crazy and also rather ineffective, as we'll see soon. The more I see her, the less I like her, because I'm just like, you're way obsessed with Long Bo, and it's just, I don't know, gross and creepy. I'm not a fan. She gets jealous with Longbo's statement of, we never turn the sword towards family. And she's over there like, wait, she, as in Wenyan, is family and you don't consider me family? And I'm like, girl, <laughs> what are you doing? Well, now let's finally return to Zhang Xiaojing, Tan Xi, and our new friend Yi Si, a minister or deacon of a Christian church. They are looking for Yo Cha, who seems to have disguised himself at this church. Yi Si shares with Zhang Xiaoqing and Tan Qi that there is an elder called Pu Zhe who fits the profile of Yo Cha, and they head to his rooms. Zhang Xiaoqing tentatively leads the way, only to find Yo Cha bloodied on the ground. The music turns tense as Zhang Xiaojing turns around to an open door on the other side of the room. Sure enough, an assassin was waiting for them. Zhang Xiaojing engages in battle with the assassin, trying to capture him for questioning, but the assassin breaks through a window to escape. And now, another one of my favorite scenes in the drama. A furious and quite exhilarating chase across the rooftop ensues, and it's not only Zhang Xiaojing who gives chase, but now Yi Si also joins in on the fray. 
Well, Issa is actually more adept on, uh, let's say, running on the rooftop than Zhang Xiaojing, and seems to be more fleet-footed. I don't know what the Venn diagram is of people who play video games and also watch Chinese dramas and listen to this podcast. Well, we fit into the center of those people. In any case, this scene is basically like playing a video game, especially Assassin's Creed. That's all about parkouring and chasing people on rooftops, so I was rather giddy watching the scene because it's like, hey, Assassin's Creed is being brought to life here. It's funny because the Assassin's Creed movie was pretty heavily panned, so maybe they should have hired this production company to create an Assassin's Creed movie instead. For these chasing scenes, it was done with a mix of green screen in the back. But as I'm watching, I'm like, dang, my knees would be in so much pain and I would have broken a couple of ankles. That being said, the rumored new Assassin's Creed Red video game is set sometime in uh, or someplace in Japan. While not the same as being set in China, it would be really interesting to see East Asian structures being parkoured upon in an Assassin's Creed game. Indeed, that is just geeking out a little bit about this rooftop chase scene, which is something that we really actually enjoyed. Unfortunately, Yi Si was not able to subdue the assassin as one of his accomplices gave him some cover and the two escaped through the crowded streets. Zhang Xiaoting and Yi Si returned to the church to take a closer look at the assassinated man. Zhang Xiaojing performs a quick overview of the body and concludes that it is indeed Yo Cha. But the group decides to put on a little show. In the room, the three act as though the man is still alive and are in need of a doctor. The aim is indeed to get the Tang Dynasty version of an ambulance to show up. A body is pushed into a cart and taken supposedly to a doctor. Except the body was actually Zhang Xiaojing in disguise. In a quiet street... Another rather comical fight ensues as the two assassins are subdued by Zhang Xiaojing and the ox carrying the cart is like, uh, get me out of here. <laughs> Tan Qi and Yi Si also arrive with Yi Si confirming that these were indeed the men from earlier. The group brings back a survivor for questioning and Yi Si tells the other monks of the church to arm themselves. There's not a whole lot they can do since, look, they're just monks, not fighters. Only thing is, Yu Chang has also arrived. Zhang Xiaojing then engages in questioning to the captured assassin. Uh, but it is quite a brutal and painful type of questioning as the man also tried to commit suicide in order to stop saying or sharing information. The monks wince at the scene and scuttle away, leaving Zhang Xiaojing to do his job. Zhang Xiaojing right now is basically, I'm at my wit's end. I don't have patience for this. So you know what? If you want to just waste my time, I'm going to make it so painful for you that you're going to talk. Unfortunately, once the monks leave, Yu Chang is there and promptly kills the two monks next to Yi Si. Yi Si only survived because of his proficient dodging slash parkouring skills. Yu Chang has made her way here to make sure that there are no loose threads as to who killed Yo Cha and eliminate any connection to Longbo, which means the mercenaries that were sent earlier today. 
Zhang Xiaojing sees Yu Chang and he sneers that they've managed to trap an even bigger prey. Another brutal fight scene happens between Yu Chang and Zhang Xiaojing. Although I'm like, Yu Chang, why are you still doing this? Because you lost the last time you fought Zhang Xiaojing. Meanwhile, Pan Xi implores the assassin to give up information about who paid them to kill this man. Clearly, the lives of these assassins are of no use to anyone anymore because whoever paid them obviously wanted them killed. And proof is that Yu Chang is here to kill them. If the mercenary doesn't tell Pan Xi who actually hired them, then this mercenary group will be left to feel the wrath of the government and the entire organization will be in peril. This statement from Pan Xi moves the assassin, who is near death anyways, but he manages to utter through his bloodied mouth of a place in Ping Kang Thang and to seek the flame master. At this point, Zhang Xiaojing has also managed to subdue Yu Chang. She tries to goad him into killing her, and he was super close to, but Pan Xi manages to back him off. Yu Chang reveals that she knows where Wen Ran is and threatens to kill her, and that's why Zhang Xiaojing goes uh, pretty mental and tries to kill Yu Chang. But we have our girl Tan Xi here to uh, kind of pull him back. They capture Yu Chang as their prize for the night. Sadly, the mercenary kills himself and outside in the courtyard, Yi Si also has to take care of the bodies of all of the monks in the church. Evidently, Yu Chang was adept in killing all these innocent civilians, but too useless to kill Zhang Xiaojing. The more I see her now, the more annoyed I am of her. She's useless and awful. I think the actress does an amazing job portraying Yu Chang, but Yu Chang's a character is useless and awful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we take a look at the scene right here where Yi Si is praying over the bodies of his fallen brethren, and it's a very touching scene. And I'm like, come on, Yu Chang, you didn't have to kill everybody. The episode ends with Zhang Xiaojing and Pan Xi tying up Yu Chang and having a rather heartfelt conversation about the show Zhuo Lang, Mercenaries, and their life, which we will elaborate on in a moment. Outside, Yi Si sends a pigeon messenger and is now greeting soldiers at the church's entrance. Before we turn to history, I do want to say that this episode, while it was very action-packed, I do like that we now finally have some heart-to-heart -heart scenes between Zhang Xiaojing and Pan Qi. Previously, they were all caught up in trying to, I guess, save the day. But we finally have a couple of scenes of them actually having a conversation, which is a nice breather. I also do appreciate the fact that in the scenes between Tan Qi and Zhang Xiaojing, Tan Qi is no longer refuting the fact that she is indeed attracted to Zhang Xiaojing given the events of today. And he is quite overt in making statements as such. And by now, Tan Qi pretty much just accepts it. She's like, I want good people to have a good ending. And she is not shying away or at least making too many uh, aggressive comments denying that she is attracted to Zhang Xiaojing. Okay, now that we have two episodes under a belt with the adorable and talkative Yi Si, let us introduce our actor, Yi Li Duosi, or 
Eldos Farouk, who portrays Yisi. This actor hails from the city of Wulumuqi, from the province of Xinjiang, and is of Uyghur descent. The now 30-year-old actor studied at the Central Academy of Drama as a director, but had several acting credits in movies and theater. While casting for the role, the director wanted someone not of East Asian descent and set their sights on someone from the Middle East. They searched far and wide, even to Egypt, North Africa, and even parts of Southern Europe. But the cast lucked out by finding Eldos. If you look closely at his eyes, he does indeed have green eyes, which mirrors the eyes of the character in the book. Even though Eldos studied at the Central Academy of Drama, he also had to work hard on his Mandarin to keep up with the rest of his cast. For the parkour scene in the episode, Eldos had to train for two months to get the scene right. All in all, very lucky to have Eldos Farouk as a member of the cast. Let's now turn to the character of Yi Si. He is actually several historical characters melded into one. The first is most likely to be the Persian prince Peraz III. The character Yi Si states that his grandfather was a Persian king whose kingdom collapsed. Yi Si, the character in the drama that is. Looking at history, the closest is the story of Prince Peraz III, who was born in 636. His father was Yazdegerd III, the last Sassanian king of Iran who ruled from 632 to 651. For much of his reign, Yazdegerd III faced an onslaught from the Muslim Arabs. As early as 639, he sent envoys to the Tang court for assistance, but the Tang did not respond until 661. By then, Yazdegerd III had died in the city of Mar, which is now in modern-day Turkmenistan. His son, which is the guy that we're talking about, Peraz III, had fled to Tang, China, and was made Prince of Persia, or Bo Si Wang, back in the 650s. He was also given the title of Yo Wu Wei Jiangjun, or I'll take the wiki translation, Marshal General of the Right Guards. There are some conflicting records because it is believed that Peraz III died in the city of Luoyang sometime in the 670s. But there are records that a quote-unquote Peraz, who was escorted by Tang troops, tried to return to Iran, but was stuck in a place called Tokhara for 20 years, which is located in around modern-day Afghanistan. This Peraz returned to the Tang court in sometime between 707 or 708. It is mainly believed that this Peraz, who returned to the Tang court, was actually Peraz III's son, Narcia. So, taking a step back, comparing to what Yisu said, he did say that it was his grandfather who was the last king. It might be that the uh, historical character or inspiration for Yisu could have been Peraz III or Narcia, but we just have a lot more, uh, I would say, historical records about Peraz III than we do for his son. As for the other historical figures, this includes a man called Yisu. The name Yisu, or I'm totally going to butcher this, uh, I think it's pronounced Yezebudzid, is actually recorded in the Nestorian Stele. 
Yezebudid or Yisi was granted the title of Jinzi Guanglu Dafu or a court position of the third rank. With that, he's allowed to wear purple at court. He played a crucial role serving alongside Guo Ziyi during the Anlu Shan Rebellion to crush the rebellion. For his support, the Church of the East was rewarded by the Tang Emperor Su Zong. The stele also notes the expansion of the church with white-robed missionaries. It was Yi Si that led the Church of the East to its pinnacle during the Tang Dynasty. These two historical characters lived about a hundred years apart, and the character of Yi Si more aligns with the historical person of Yi Si. The author just threw in the line about the royal heritage, which mixes this up a little bit. What I do absolutely love about including this Yisa character in the book and in the drama really shows the diversity of the Tang dynasty during that time. I don't think we see many dramas with this type of diversity included and the fact that we had people of varying skin tones and actually a Christian church show up is something that I think is quite unique to this drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an, and one that I really appreciated. The funniest inside joke throughout the drama, though, is that the Chinese people always just called the church Bosi Church or the Persian Monastery or Persian Church. And multiple times, Yisi would be like, no, it's Jingsi, which is a... Uh, church that we view from a Christian lens. And anyways, I thought that joke was so interesting because it really changes the narrative since in the West, the Christian church is much more powerful than many other religions. So enough about Yisi. We do like this character a lot. I know last week he seemed kind of menacing because he had his hood up. But now, you know, he's just a very cute parkour prince who wants to, I guess, make sure that his church is able to survive in China. And in the book, he is known to be someone who just talks way too much <laughs> um, and is still adorable. I think they upped the adorableness in the drama. And yes, Issa talks a little bit too, uh, too much, but not as much as in the book. So I appreciate the casting for this Yisa character to bring in a different flavor. Well, on the carriage ride back to the church, Zhang Xiaojing and Tan Xi have a rather touching scene. Zhang Xiaojing wants to sing her a song, but he doesn't know any. Instead, he recites a poem for her, one that really moves her. The poem is called Xia Ke Xing, or Ode to Gallantry. In the drama, Zhang Xiaojing only recites the first eight lines of the poem. There are a total of 24, but in reading the full poem, it makes sense why Zhang Xiaojing only recites the first eight. They go as such. Zhao Ke Man Hu Ying, Wu Go Shuang Xue Ming, Yin An Zhao Bai Ma, Sa Ta Ru Liu Xing, Shi Bu Sha Yi Ren, Qian Li Bu Liu Xing, Shi Liao Fu Yi Qu, the whole poem itself refers to the heroes of the Warring States period who lived during the 3rd century BC. Here's my translation. The swordsman from the kingdom of Zhao wears straw hats with no decoration. One has the famed curved broadsword Wu Gou. 
The blade is as bright as snow. They ride white horses with silver saddles, riding through the streets as if shooting stars from the sky. Their martial arts are unparalleled, killing people every 10 steps. They find no rivals in a thousand miles. They are heroes of justice and chivalry. After performing their deeds, with a turn of their cloak, they leave and don't even leave a name. The remainder of the poem recounts specific stories of the Lord of Xinlin and his brotherhood. I'm not going to recount that part of the poem because they really don't add much to the episode and it doesn't really make sense to talk about them. For me, the reason why Tan Xi is so touched by this poem really is the last line. And that's the line that she recites rather than Zhang Xiaojing. Again, the translation is this. They are heroes of justice and chivalry. After performing their deeds with a turn of their cloak, they leave and don't even leave a name. Right before Zhang Xiaojing recites this poem, he told her that she'll turn into a mean old lady because the one person she'll love in life, she'll only know for one day. Connecting this statement back to the poem, Zhang Xiaojing is that hero of justice who will unfortunately have to leave her without leaving a name for himself. Is this foreshadowing? Perhaps. I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, but if we just keep it into the context of, so far, the several hours that they've known each other, Zhang Xiaojing is that hero of justice, and he is still a death row convict. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him the next day, so everything that he's saying right now is a factual statement. The poem itself was written by who else? Li Bai. The drama heavily utilizes his poems, and this one is no exception. The timing of the poem doesn't quite work out, though, because this poem is believed to have been written in 744 when Li Bai was traveling to the city of Qizhou. We are currently in the very early days of 744, so it really doesn't make sense for Zhang Xiaojing to know this particular poem. From an analysis perspective, these eight lines, at least in Chinese, really depict the atmosphere of these swordsmen. It conjures up an image of these mastered swordsmen racing through the city fighting for justice rather than specific individuals that really do reflect the poem, at least in the latter half. Next up, near the end of the episode, Yi Si says a prayer for his fallen brethren. He recites the Sutra on Mysterious Rest and Joy, or Zhixuan An Le Jing. It is believed that the surviving manuscript was unearthed from the caves of Dunhuang. It came into the possession of the Qing Dynasty collector Li Shengduo. The manuscript was purchased by the Japanese professor Toru Haneda in the 1930s, who wrote books about these surviving texts. Based on Toru Haneda's analysis, the Sutra on Mysterious Rest and Joy has 2,660 words and is a late Tang Dynasty handwritten copy of an original. The Syriac Christian monk Adam, or in Chinese, Jing Jing, was hypothesized to be the author, translator, or writer of the document. Adam lived in the mid-8th century and was also the author of the Nestorian Stele that we mentioned in last week's episode. 
Adam translated over 30 biblical texts into Chinese written script, of which includes the Sutra on Mysterious Rest and Joy. He also helped translate Buddhist texts. We know of Adam or Jin Jing because his name is written in Syriac on the Nestorian stele. According to the Beijing University philosophy professor Zhu Tianzhi, the texts engraved on the stele reflected Adam's high status and standing as the leader of the Church of the East during his time in the Tang Dynasty. Lastly, let's close out on a discussion of the mercenaries or in this drama called Shou Zhuo Lang. In history, Shou Zhuo appears in the New Book of Tang, which states that these protection garrisons were set up during the early years of the Tang Dynasty for border defense. But these were considered smaller forces. During the middle of the Tang Dynasty, these Shou Zhuo garrisons were expanded throughout the empire. They were bigger than just a simple outpost, but smaller than a formal garrison for troops. For each Shou Zhuo garrison, there were between 300 to 7,000 people. As noted in the drama, a portion of these men were transferred from different armies, but some were also convicts that were sent to these garrisons as punishment. Families also traveled or lived at the garrison. The word shou means protect, so these garrisons were sent or placed all throughout the north and northwest of the empire to protect the borders against the nomadic tribes and also many of the kingdoms outside that were along the route of the Silk Road. The whole concept, though, of these Shouzhuolong as assassins were invented by the author. They were just conveniently leveraged as an organization for hire, and where they come from, specifically the Northwest, do play a role in the unraveling of the secrets later on in this drama. And that closes out our discussion of episode 21 of The Longest Day in Chang'an. The music for this episode is Qingping Yue, played by yours truly, with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. Friendly reminder that if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and movies and you are in the U.S., head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV, that is J-U-B-A-O TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch with English subtitles. They have launched on Sling TV and on Plex. You can also access it through the website Jumo or else on TV if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour. Thanks so much for listening and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode.